Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to Arkansas AgCast for January 16th. I'm your host, Matt King. This week, we talk with soybean and trade experts about the latest news on trade negotiations and the road ahead in 2020. We also get the latest on the pork industry from Dr. David Newman, president of the National Pork Board and Arkansas State University animal science professor, and learn about new urban agriculture classes being offered at the St. Joseph Center in North Little Rock. First, Arkansas Farm Bureau's Ken Moore sat down with Hannah Abu, Director of International Trade Policy with the American Soybean Association and Newport farmer Derek Hagwood, who represents the state as chair of the U.S. Soybean Export Council, to discuss the importance of reestablishing trade in China and efforts to develop new markets for U.S. soybeans. I'm in Stuttgart at the annual meeting of the Arkansas Soybean Association, and I'm visiting right now with uh, Hannah Abu. She is the Director of International Trade Policy for the American Soybean Association, and also joining us is Derek Haywood, who is chair of the U.S. Soybean Export Council, and uh, trade is a huge issue for the soybean industry. It has been for some time, and of course we all know uh, about the uh, tariff war that has been ongoing with uh, the Chinese market, uh, but hopefully things are about to improve on that front. Hannah, let's just talk about that briefly. You just briefed the soybean farmers here at the ASA meeting uh, on where we stand with the marketing opportunities there in China, but explain how this pending agreement with phase one is going to help improve market opportunities for the soybean industry. Sure. So I think first and foremost, the the one thing that we're looking forward to is that the signing of this phase one deal, which we're expected to happen tomorrow in Washington, D.C., will be the first time we've seen a significant de-escalation in the tariff war between the U.S. and China. Um, And in particular, uh, we're hoping to see when this agreement is signed, uh, increases in opportunities for agriculture products, not just soybeans, to re-enter the China market. So for the soybean sector, we've always had a good entry into China. They've been our number one market for whole soybeans uh, for a number of years. And in fact, they they take well over 50% of our U.S. exports traditionally. At least they did uh, prior to the, the implication of these tariffs. So what we're looking to see with the uh, entry of this agreement is the beginning of a rebuilding of the market that we had before 2018. And we're looking forward to additional shipments um, that look much more like 2017 than they did in 2018 and 2019 into China. You also touched on how the uh, swine flu uh, issue, an epidemic really over there in Asia, uh, has severely diminished the uh, the hog herd, if you will. Can we anticipate uh, exports of meal uh, increasing? So we're not likely to see increases of the meal itself go from the U.S. to China. Um, And that's because traditionally China has been a purchaser of whole soybeans. And while their demand is driven by the meal, they actually have crushing facilities in country. So when we look to China and we think about the the soybeans they're going to want to feed their pork pork herds or whether they move into more poultry production or even beef, uh, we're still going to expect them to be importing the whole beans themselves and then using their domestic crushing system to produce the meal. So the indicator we're going to look for in the market overall in 2020 to see if we see that rebounding in the China market is still likely going to be whole beans. 
All right, then. And what about another markets over there in Asia outside of China? Uh, hopefully there's going to be demand and opportunities there. Yeah, I mean, the the Asia-Pacific region uh, and Southeast Asia is definitely a growing market for soybeans and for soybean meal and soybean oil. So unlike China, a lot of those other countries uh, have more flexibility in what it is that they're looking to purchase. Um, and so we definitely are looking to markets that we think we have expansion opportunity in in that region, places like Vietnam, Indonesia, as well as continuing to export some to some of our more mature markets like Japan. Um, one of the things I didn't uh, touch on in our briefing, but that occurred last year in 2019 was that we actually completed an interim agreement with uh, Japan, between the U.S. and Japan, which codifies a number of tariff reductions that the U.S. would have had in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, And part of that is a much more entry for livestock products into Japan. And that can only mean good things for us on uh, soybean consumption on the domestic side if Japan is buying more beef, uh, more pork, and more poultry. And what about USMCA? That hopefully will be a done deal very, very soon once the full Senate gets to vote on it and it's sent it to the president's desk. How will uh, getting US, USMCA ratified help our being, uh, industry? Uh, so we are really looking forward to seeing a successful completion of USMCA. We were very pleased with the House vote that occurred at the end of December. Um, it had an immense amount of support from both sides of the aisle. And we're looking right now for the Senate to take up USMCA uh, and pass it uh, early this year. Uh, one of the things that we expect from the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement is really to kind of continue and to codify the entry into Canada and Mexico that we had under the NAFTA agreement. Um, we're not likely to see uh, a huge increase in exports, but what we are going to see is uh, a reassurance with two of our top markets, Mexico being the number two market for uh, beans, meal, and oil uh, for the U.S. We're going to see the certainty return to that market, and we're going to give our uh, loyal customers there the certainty that they need to know that they've got a strong partner in the U.S. Derek, let's talk about the Export Council then and your role there as chair. It's uh, great that we have you in this position. Uh, as one of our uh, representatives here in Arkansas, but uh, what's on the uh, what's on USEC's front this year in 2020? And I uh, heard you talk about we can't just put all our eggs in one basket, so to speak, with our exports. So USEC started the What It Takes initiative. We have this enormous pile of soybeans with the tariffs and and with this ASF epidemic that we're dealing with. The stocks were rising here in in the U.S. And so this What It Takes initiative. We focused on on moving into new markets. We did a lot of research in finding exactly where their, the, the countries were that not only needed our soybeans, but were, were able to handle it. We were able to use the infrastructure they had in place and take our soybeans and process it and capitalize on that. We've seen a lot of benefits in, in several countries a, across the world where uh, we've gone from maybe two, 300,000 metric tons a year to a 4 million, uh, metric, 4 million metric tons of soy uh, in places like, like Bangladesh and Egypt. Now, last year, of course, we know the uh, river flooding uh, severely impacted barge traffic around Mississippi River. Are we seeing a renewal of that traffic? So as barge traffic increases on the Mississippi River, I think I think farmers will see a reflection of that in the bases at at, at Memphis, and uh, and I'm setting right now 
just waiting for this trade deal to be signed tomorrow. Uh, hope, hopefully we will see a positive effect in the market and we see the market react in a positive way uh, and let those shipments start rolling. Uh, the, that's such an advantage that we have here in Arkansas is access to to the Mississippi River, uh, the ability to ship it anywhere in the world from right here where we're located. And we're looking to capitalize on that in, in any way that we can. You mentioned Egypt and some of these other markets, uh, but beyond the ones you guys have already talked about, uh, I know you're working all the time, you know, on developing trade relations with new partners. What are some of the other countries we may be looking at in the future? So uh, Hannah mentioned Indonesia, Vietnam, when we see the growth potential there. What, what we have here as a U.S. soy family is the ability to go into these countries. Um, we have uh, the work that Hannah's doing here in D.C. And, and around the world where where we have the policy to go in there. If they want our soybeans, we don't want any restrictions or any barriers in that place. Uh, my role in USEC as we travel internationally, we can go to those foreign governments and try to remove any non-tariff barriers that are there. Um, a lot of our time, a lot of our efforts and money are focused on market access and, and be, uh, be that soybean trait that, that some company has released that, that will be very beneficial to the farmer. Our job is to go in, talk to those governments, make sure that we can have access to those markets using those new products and using those new tools that the farmers can put in their toolbox. Well, Hannah, we know that uh, there's other countries that grow soybeans as well. I know Brazil is a big competitor. Uh, we have to position ourselves in the United States uh, with these potential new tra- trading partners against uh, Brazil and other countries. How are we doing that? Well, I think that when it comes to Brazil and Argentina, I think in some ways it's always good to have that healthy competition because it really does keep us in the U.S. on the forefront of making sure that we are uh, talking about the benefits of U.S. soy, talking about why the soybeans that we grow here in the U.S. have a quality that we know our customers want. And so I think in that regard, uh, having that competition is definitely a good thing. Um, I do think that, you know, we've seen uh, some pretty interesting shifts in the last two years when it comes to who's buying uh, beans and where they're buying from. China has caused uh, a lot of disruption in the market with not buying U.S. beans. So in some cases, you know, we saw a a lot more U.S. soybeans go into the European Union than we had seen in any previous year. Uh, It was up to 16% of the U.S. beans exported had gone to the EU, which three years ago was uh, closer to 10 or 11%. So I think we're going to see a little bit more of that shifting this year when it comes to uh, what it looks like between the U.S., Brazil, and Argentina as hopefully the U.S re-enters uh, the China market in a much stronger way. And Derek, just kind of put a bow on this. Why are we better in producing soybeans and why should our uh, partners, potential new markets even, want American beans over what they can find somewhere else? So to, for a sh- the short answer of that is we have several advantages. We have intrinsic and extrinsic values that, that we can set down and show customers exactly what we're talking about. When I talk about the intrinsic advantages, we talk about the amino acid profile, the digestibility of U.S. soy. And we have scientific evidence where we can sit down and show that animals do better when they're fed U.S. soy and when it's processed. And the extrinsic value we have is this, this amazing 
infrastructure uh, that that we can we just talked about the mississippi river where we can ship huge containers huge uh, panamaxes to anywhere where we want in the world we have the ability to uh, also with all these programs that that u.s farmers have we have the ability to travel uh, and facilitate customers using U.S. soy. We can send in nutritionists and animal experts and show them exactly uh, the formulation that they they need to do to to maximize their profits. So, you think 2020 is going to be a better year than the last couple of years for the soybean industry in the country? I think it has to be. I, I think that uh, the future is bright. I'm encouraged with all the work that the U.S. soy family has put into uh, not only these trade deals, but just making sure that farmers have every advantage they can worldwide. Well, thank you both for taking a few minutes to visit with us and update us on where we stand with our uh, trading opportunities as we enter a new year here in 2020. I've been speaking with Derek Haywood, chair of the U.S. Soybean Export Council and Hannah Abu, who is Director of International Trade Policy for the American Soybean Association. Next, Keith Sutton has a conversation with Arkansas State's Dr. David Newman, President of the National Pork Board, about recent happenings in the pork industry, including a look at foreign trade and new sustainability report. Welcome to AgCast. I'm Keith Sutton with Arkansas Farm Bureau, and today I'm visiting with Dr. David Newman, who is a professor of animal science at Arkansas State University and the president of the National Pork Board. Welcome to AgCast, David. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invite. Well, I know uh, one of the things that just happened uh, last week, uh, you had a meeting of the National Board of Directors of the Pork Board. Maybe you'd like to start by filling us in on some of the things that are happening there. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, So right now, uh, we've been putting a lot of efforts into uh, redesigning and making the pork checkoff system a real, uh, you know, inline business-to-business model where we're talking about being agile, being quick to respond to the industry, and really answer not only the needs of our producers, uh, but also of our consumers. Our recent uh, board meeting that we had last week, we had it down in Miami, Florida, uh, not for the weather. We were actually there uh, because we have a big push going on right now at the National Pork Board in terms of really being aware of the multicultural markets, uh, in particular uh, the Latino or Hispanic market. Uh, the opportunity, the huge opportunity that, that presents here in the United States um, in, in terms of domestic consumption. And so uh, we spent some time there at the board meeting uh, working with uh, uh, our agency who runs our multicultural, uh, working with uh, companies like Telemundo, which is NBC network uh, uh, that focuses primarily on the Latino audience. Uh, also looking at uh, retailers that focus on offering the different variety of cuts that the Hispanic and Latino and multicultural market wants. So uh, it was really a, a, a busy business week looking at the, the huge opportunities that exist for pork. Tell us uh, maybe a little bit about uh, how those multicultural markets will affect uh, uh, pork producers. Uh, 
hopefully that means they'll have more markets, I guess. Sure. Well, I can I can tell you this. It's, it's not only going to support pork producers. It's going to support anybody in the protein or the food business. And um, if you look at the data, it's pretty incredible. We have uh, more than 50 million uh, Latinos here in the United States. That number is growing by the day. The impact that they have in the market, the spending power they have in the U.S. economy uh, is is nearly $1.5 trillion currently and growing fast. So uh, it is really a, if you look at the long-term strategy here for domestic consumption, domestic pork consumption, a.k.a. the product our producers are, are making every day and lots of it, uh, this, this Hispanic and Latino and, and, and overall multicultural market. That includes uh, African-American, Asian. Um, so when we look at this, these are actually some of our biggest opportunities for uh, livestock protein moving forward. Uh, they, have, they have money, they want to eat meat, they want to eat beef, pork, and lamb and chicken, they want to be offered a variety or a suite of products um, and they'll eat nose to tail, and it can help bring up uh, all pieces and primals and parts of, of the animal, which is good for our producers. I know uh, last time we talked, David, back in early October, we were also talking about the market in China and how it is changing with uh, this disease they have affecting uh, hogs over there. Can you talk some more about that and where where we stand with uh, trade with China? Yes, sir. Uh, well, let's let's we'll break this into the first part of the question, which is African swine fever. Uh, it is the 800-pound gorilla in the room when it talks to the uh, you know the future of the pork business around the world. Roughly, we have lost uh, anywhere from. 20 to 40 plus percent of the world's hogs over the last 18 months. So we're talking about hundreds of millions of hogs dead uh, all throughout uh, not only China, uh, but other parts of the world as well. Russia, China, Singapore, the Philippines, uh, Vietnam, uh, even some cases in, in, in Korea. So. We have, uh, this, is, this is something we take extremely serious. Our chief veterinarian, Dr. Dave Pyburn, has a team of people working on this constantly. Uh, we also uh, funded a, a, an entity known as SHIC, which is the Swine Health Information Center. They track global disease, so they have a surveillance piece. We focus on safe pork supplies so that if, the if factor here is important, if we were to get ASF in the United States, and thank God it currently does not exist in the Western Hemisphere at all, uh, that we will, we do have plans in place for uh, movement of pigs, sale of pigs, market reconciliation, uh, et cetera. The, the second piece, of course, although the National Port Board does not work in policy, that is our, our, our uh, other organization in the pork industry, the National Pork Producers Council, who we are very close with, um, we all know that the China trade deal is very big. As a matter of fact, at this exact moment, uh, uh, President Trump is speaking 
uh, on the phase one China deal. Uh, anybody who's lost the volume of pork or pigs that, that they have in China, I mean, they've lost nearly, you know, as I said, 30 to 50 percent of the pigs in China. The, uh, the Chinese eat a tremendous amount of pork. So there's a big, big, big opportunity in China. And uh, hopefully this phase one trade deal uh, is something that is good, not only for uh, us in the pork business, for, but for our brothers and sisters in corn, soy, beef, uh, and numerous other commodities on the ag sector. Let's also talk about something that happened this week. Uh, the pork industry has released a new sustainability report. Uh, what can you tell us about that, and why is this happening? Sure. Well, sustainability is something that we hear coming out of everyone's mouth these days. Uh, and, you know, it has a variety of definitions, but, but in our side on the pork business, uh, one of the things that we talk about all of the time is our we care ethical principles in the pork business. So that's, that includes food safety, animal well-being, public health, people, and the environment. The environmental piece is, is big, and it is the cornerstone around which we work um, with, with the pork producers on every day. So uh, we're looking at, in this newly released sustainability report, we're looking about we're looking at things that consumers are very aware of and producers such as greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere, uh, you know, things along the lines of how we do manure application, impact on natural resources, water use, carbon footprint, and the list goes on and on. Here's what's important to know is that uh, our producers care about the environment. They're, they're our farms. They are the livelihood on which our producers make a living so so no one would intentionally damage their own farms you know in this in a family setting that we all produce pigs in including myself uh, we want what's best for the people we want what's best for the pigs and we want what's best for the environment so our contribution to greenhouse gas emissions has significantly gone down uh, according to the EPA uh, pork production contributes only 0.46 of 1% of the U.S. greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere. That's pretty good. And uh, we've decreased our land use by nearly 80%, our water use by 25%, our energy by nearly 10%, and our carbon footprint by uh, around close to 10% as well. So, so we've gotten better. We're constantly engaging with research and science to make the best decisions that are good for the environment. Uh, and for pork producers and our consumers. And I know that uh, people who'd like to learn more about that report, read the complete report, they can go to the new website, porkcares.org. Porkcares.org, is that right? That is correct, yes, sir. And they can also just go to pork.org and they can get a link over there. Dr. Brett Kaysen, who's heading up that uh, initiative, is doing a really really nice job in that area so uh so we're, we're we're very fortunate to have him working on behalf of america's pork producers lots of great things going on in the pork industry uh we are proud of you uh, representing uh, arkansas and the pork producers in your capacity as president we always appreciate you taking time to talk to us is there anything else you'd like to say david before we wrap up today 
you know, I would just say that uh, we appreciate uh, being able to tell our story. That's very important to us. So uh, keep looking for good things coming out of the National Pork Board. Um, and, uh, you know, keep pork on your plate. That's important to American pig farmers uh, across from coast to coast. So, uh, so we just appreciate your time. And uh, if you have any other questions at any given time, you can reach out. We're, we're happy to, to be very transparent in what we do every day. Finally, Ken Moore talks to Ron Rainey, who leads the Market Maker Program for the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture, about teaching classes on urban agriculture at the St. Joseph Center in North Little Rock. Two free classes will focus on marketing and planning in urban agriculture, and they will be held this Saturday, January 18th, at the St. Joseph Center. Participants will learn how to successfully develop their gardens and market their products, and the resources available to support them. I'm Ken Moore, and I'm visiting now with uh, Dr. Ron Rainey. Ron is an extension economist with the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture, and uh, we're going to be talking today about an urban agriculture seminar. In fact, it's titled A Marketing and Planning for Urban Agriculture Seminar this coming Saturday morning at the St. Joseph Center in North Little Rock, and uh, Ron is one of the presenters at this uh, seminar this weekend and uh, how much is uh, urban agriculture growing? Uh, Is there more to urban agriculture than just uh, people who like to grow a few uh, vegetables in their backyards? No, absolutely. It is is much, much more uh, than just backyard gardening or what typically we consider those raised beds that we see a lot within our urban areas. It also uh, uh, expands out to uh, high tunnels and we do have some high tunnel operations that are operating within the city, Uh, some rooftop gardens, hydroponic gardens, uh, community gardens, which a number of you are probably familiar with, and then what they call uh, vertical gardens. Um, And so there's a collection of of activities that look at at the idea of basically cultivating, processing, distributing food in an urban or city area. And and we also have a little bit, although I don't think any of, of those growers are doing it are selling their product, or not to my knowledge, some backyard poultry uh, around the state where people are putting small flocks within the urban city. They're putting small flocks and doing some eggs for personal consumption. And I'm aware of some CSA, uh, maybe a little bit of farmer's market, uh, market channel use there as well. So there's a variety of, uh, of activities that are defined for urban ag, and the 2018 Farm Bill actually calls for uh, some data collection so that we can get a better, better grasp of all the types of agriculture that are occurring in this space. Because right now there's very limited data on how, how, how large is this sector and is it growing or not. Just from personal anecdotal notes, uh, I see a, a, an uptick in the number of, of activities in these spaces. More and more people want to grow their own food, and they're learning how to do it. But exactly uh, what are you going to be sharing with the people who uh, attend this event this weekend? Well, well, one of the things I'm going to share is, is to just talk about all those different types, because some people still have a very narrow definition, and, and they say, well, can I, can I even farm in the city? And, and just alert them of, of, of the different technologies that are available, alert them to, to the need to, to make sure that they're they're following zoning guidelines. They're not exceeding size or specific regs 
that are coming into play there. I know that some cities are actually starting to uh, implement some specific regulations for uh, exceptions or ag exceptions so that to allow for urban agriculture. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about that just so that people get a broader understanding of what it is when they think of urban ag. And then I'm going to uh, drill down to say, you know, uh, there was uh, some analysis or a survey done a few years ago that just kind of talked about the profile, what the size was. Typically, these are small farms, uh, as you would suspect. They have multiple managers, and they involve some type of an internship. So they're very much vested in the community, very much in terms of uh, promoting and marketing their products, uh, tying in with that local brand. So I'm just kind of going to share those types of uh, kind of characteristics to help them see whether they are thinking about starting an urban farm or whether they're already engaged to hopefully give them some ideas, the participants some ideas of ways that they can explore and use this, uh, this model or framework, if you will, to, to grow a farm business. I know that uh, even within the, uh, the in the downtown area of Little Rock, there's a uh, community garden where uh, people can go and grow produce and uh, and then resell that later on site. Talk about how uh, these efforts are uh, maybe increasing, and uh, for those who may not even be aware of them. No, uh, as, as I said earlier, yeah, they're they're definitely increasing, and and a lot of it is is one people want to. Uh, grow their food. They want to understand how food grows, and a lot of that grows from their heightened health consciousness of just wanting to know where their food comes from. Uh, I think that consumers are, are, are overwhelmed by marketing messages. Uh, we see um, all types of, of segments and links to health. Uh, and so one of the things is that consumers have this extreme interest in, in, uh, in curiosity, and they're wanting to, to get their hands in the dirt literally, uh, whether that's through volunteering, whether that's that be shopping at a farmer's market and talking to farmers about how they grow their products, uh, what types of varieties, uh, because everyone can in many ways become or feel like they're an expert just by a click of the Internet. And so that's what we see, this level of sophistication from consumers is, is growing uh, a lot of that is coming from the urban population centers around the country and here in Arkansas. And so the thing that I like to talk to, to these different groups when I do these presentations is that, that that's an education, but it is a marketing opportunity to make those connections. Because one of the things that uh, that I think that consumers are struggling with, and one, they're trying to get engaged, one, they're trying to be more active and get involved in their community, is that because of all the different and, and sometimes competing messages that they hear, is that there is a, a, a level of distrust uh, when it comes to marketing and the messages specifically with food. And so consumers are trying to, to kind of verify and to become more knowledgeable and become more engaged. And so that's what we see happening. We see opportunities where people are looking at trying to revitalize communities from an economic development perspective of taking some of these vacant lots and, and, and doing some, uh, uh, actually getting some activity, uh, making them know the aesthetics of the area to, to enhance the property value. And we, so we see a host of, uh, of goals that people are using, communities and individuals are using to use agriculture, uh, some are specifically for beautification if you're looking at just some flowering things of that nature, flower gardens. But some of them they're looking, trying to develop an, an understanding for entrepreneurship and how these can be viable businesses. 
I know you're going to be also talking about the resources that the Division of Agriculture and the Extension Service will provide for people who are just kind of getting started and need to, uh, you know, utilize the resources that you and your office would provide. How can they uh, reach out to you and the Extension Service for more information? Absolutely. So any anyone listening to this, feel free to just contact your local county extension office and just ask them about uh, specific information that they might have for specific opportunities in agriculture. Uh, typically what our county office will do if they don't have information sp- per se on urban ag, they will then reach out to our state office uh, uh, or where our, where our faculty specialize, where we have I, as an economist, we have horticulture here. We have food safety here, specialists that specialize in that. But we provide all our information down to our county faculty as well. So uh, I encourage them to reach out to our to our local county offices. Uh, I specialize in marketing and have some resources. They can reach out through Market Maker, which is an online marketing resource that, that we engage directly to allow them to sign up for a free online marketing portal. So there's an array of, of avenues that they can contact, but I encourage them to start with their local county office. In addition to uh, Ron's presentation, there will be a uh, another session presented by uh, Bobby Burroughs. He is the farm manager at the St. Joseph Center in North Little Rock. He'll be speaking on crop planning and tools available to streamline the uh, urban production process. So two outstanding sessions here for those attending this uh, weekend event. And, uh, Ron, I believe for more information, people can visit the St. Joseph Center Facebook page to get directions and learn more about how to register for this event. Absolutely. And, and it's the St. Joseph Center of Arkansas. So feel free to go out and visit uh, that center, uh, get some more information about ways that you can uh, enhance understanding of uh, of urban agriculture, uh, both from what is the definition of, 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 of that market, but also some hands-on demonstration that Mr. Barrows is going to provide because they actually have, in many ways, a demonstration farm up there where they're actually uh, providing technical assistance where they have uh, some raised beds and high tunnels that they're going to actually demonstrate some of the practices that they discuss. And it will start at 9.30 a.m. on Saturday at that St. Joseph Center. But that information is available on their uh, website, on their Facebook page, and there's still some seats available for those interested in attending. Ron, thank you so much for your time, and this is exciting. We'll uh, look forward to following the development of uh, urban agriculture here in central Arkansas and across the state uh, in the future. Hey, thank you so much for this opportunity, and I look forward to seeing some of you out there on a Saturday. We've been speaking with Dr. Ron Rainey, uh, Extension Economist with the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture, on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. That's all for this week. Arkansas AgCast returns next week with a special edition of interviews and news from the American Farm Bureau Annual Convention in Austin, Texas. 